you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to a movie reviewing reappraising genre hopping podcast this is be real i'm chance solemn pfeiffer and i'm noah ballard no, we're here today to talk about uh, perhaps controversial, perhaps thorny set of movies um, and ask, I think, one big question. Loose change. Did it go far enough? I, I don't know. I still have questions myself. Uh, I've never seen. Just kidding. I've never seen Loose Change. Have you seen Loose Change? I'm not. A, I, I'm not. I have not, and I'm not a 9-11 conspiracy theorist. Probably should say that right at the beginning. Should we both declare it? You have yet to, so I'm excited to see where this goes. I'm going to stay mom about it. Um, We are here on, what is it, September 12th, to talk about a category of movies that uh, you you pitched back in August, and that I think is a really interesting a slightly more difficult than average uh, category. Um, we're going to do 9-11 Fallout movies on today's show. Yeah. 9-11 Grieving films? Mm-hmm. Like, we're not doing Oliver Stone. Uh, no reenactments. Or Paul Greengrass's. Yeah. And we're not doing... I feel like you could make the argument that Zero Dark Thirty is like a 9-11 Fallout movie, but it's not a 9-11 grieving movie. And it ends up becoming a reenactment movie when it shows the assassination of bin Laden in, um, I would say, excruciating detail if you could see any of it in the film. Right. It's sort of like that that one battle in Game of Thrones written by another screenwriter who wrote one of these movies. See, every, it's all tied together. Absolutely. Um, so what are the three movies we're discussing today? We're talking the 25th hour, Rain Over Me, and Netflix's recent Worth. Mm-hmm. So do you want to say anything? We were both talking before we started about just kind of like conversations we had on Saturday, the 20th anniversary of September 11, 2001. Um, any, any insights, um, jog loose for you and just talking to like Lucy about what you guys remembered or how you were feeling. Yeah. I mean, for me, it, it like was pretty close to home. Like as a kid, uh, you know, my dad's from Queens and my uncles were living in New York at the time. Uh, so we would go up fairly frequently and like the twin towers was just like something that was in the background. Uh, and I remember it had happened, like the my dad and I every summer would like do a weekend in New York where we would like go to a whole Yankees series and it was like the August weekend before September 11th because that was the first week of school um and so it like there the, for me at least there's like a New York before and a New York after and it's interesting like how these three movies kind of capture that and how like even filmmaking in general like kind of shifts at that point about like what is a New York movie? And when a movie's set in New York, like what is allowed to happen? Uh, and I think like I kind of grew up as a film goer adjacent to that change. And so it's interesting to then look back. Yeah. Um, I found myself thinking about sort of like the days after in 2001. I remember that like my fifth grade teacher kind of had like this 
amazingly patient, like three hour, um, like Q and a with us, like 11 year olds, um, that in retrospect sort of foreshadowed, like the inability of adults to have conversations about politics in America and truth for like the next 20 years of my entire life. Like I just remember 11 year olds being in the room that day and being like, my dad says this, or like the terrorists were from here. Right. And the teacher kind of being like, well, guys, 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 like information is needed here. I know tensions are hot. And I just think of all those kids now and like how those conversations uh, never stopped. Those conversations like are social media and like are (laughs) our inability to believe and trust each other and be on the same page for like the next 20 years, which sadly in in kind of reflecting on the day with Sarah, um, I was sort of like, I don't know if anything, do you feel like a lot of like redemptive things came out of September 11, 2001? No. It's very weird too, especially when you look at these movies and they all kind of have their voice about, like I was texting you about this, the the idea that, oh, the, you know, there's always a monologue where they talk about like the guys who came over and ruined everything, like being the, you know, brown terrorists who supposedly you know, were the catalyst for all this violence. Um, but, you know, the the simplicity that I think the American people were sort of able to subscribe to at that time of like, those are evildoers and like, we're good. Like these movies all are kind of playing, whether they know it or not, with that question of like, are things black and white? Like, is there the bad guy over there who did the hijacking and there's the good guy here who ran to the burning building? Yeah. And just thinking about the legacy of it, like redemption is Hollywood's stock and trade. And it's really weird, especially with two of these movies, that, um, you know, I don't know how much redemption there was. Violence was met with violence. Religious extremism was not met with conversations about religious extremism. It was met with more extremism. Just like, you know, all these different um, possible avenues of some redemption were... um, not taken anyway should we start with the 25th hour or just 25th hour yeah how dare you say the article we're not talking about the book we're talking about the motion picture based on the book cut the the it's it's cleaner 25th hour cornered by the dea convicted new york drug dealer montgomery brogan reevaluates his life in the 24 remaining hours before facing a seven-year jail term and you may ask, that doesn't sound like it has anything to do with 9-11. And you would essentially be right. And I think why this is such a fast, and I've argued with Chance about this for years. Not argued, but I've said it for years until you finally watched it. was like, this is a 9-11 movie. Um, because when they were filming this otherwise totally unrelated movie, 9-11 happened. And they were shooting in New York. And they realized that like their opportunity there for the production was to film what it looked like in those like weird few months uh, as New York kind of was like, you know, shocked with an open wound. I think that they're an open wound. Yes. And I think this is some of the best cinematography too of that because everybody's seen like the iconic flag that's like coming off the piece of the wall there, you know, and people have seen the sort of larger than life 9-11 imagery, but this captures something so so weird. I remember when I saw this movie with my dad years ago that like 
There's this iconic shot where two characters are talking to each other in an apartment and the, the camera kind of pushes towards the window and you realize like that's that's what's left of the World Trade Center. Um, and at the end of the scene, it zooms in on the construction workers and it's like they look like they're astronauts. They like look like they're on a different planet. And it's so it like almost makes this movie like have a have a sort of horror movie like patina on it, like a haunted city kind of thing. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, and but we should say what the movie is actually about. Sure, yeah, we're gonna have to balance these two things. So uh, Ed Norton um, plays Monty, the drug dealer, with twenty four hours until uh twenty five hours maybe until a seven year seven year bit for dealing drugs under some Rockefeller. He got touched. Laws. <laughs> <laughs> he got touched. He's over. Um. And yeah, like the the night out that he has with his friends, uh, Jacob Alinsky, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, who's a English teacher at the private school where Monty went to school with Jacob, uh, and also Frank, who's a Wall Street broker, played by Barry Pepper, um, Monty's girlfriend, uh, Naturel, uh, played by Rosario Dawson, um, is like trying to connect with him at the, you know, the twilight of what's going to be this relationship and that's not going super well um philip seymour hoffman uh the teacher is is distracted by this this uh, student um played by anna paquin uh and then we also have brian cox in the mix playing monty's dad who uh owns a firefighter bar in staten island you can't see me being a father no well, I can see you fathering children. I can see you raising it. I would raise my own chalupas. Well, we're definitely not having any kids together if you're going to be calling them chalupas. It's probably your mother. You have the worst timing ever. Montgomery broken in? I'm Agent Flood with the Drug Enforcement Administration. Everything's gotten so strange, Bob. The only people I trust are you and guys I grew up with. What do we say to him? We'll say nothing. He's going to hell for seven years. What am I going to do, wish him luck? Champagne for my real friends and real pain for my sham friends. Can't believe you brought my student in here. I mean, you haven't done anything wrong yet. What do you mean yet? She's the only girl I've ever kept fantasizing about after I slept with her. Is that normal? That's a pretty good kind of normal. We haven't talked about this at all. You know, this is our last no, night. it's not our last night. My last night. I watched him ruin his life. The last 10 years, I've been watching him get deeper and deeper. I look at these people around me and I, I'm thinking, these are my friends? I don't even know these people. He doesn't trust me. What reason does he have not to trust you? Yeah, it's a great cast. I have to say that off the bat. And there are some like hilarious sort of like joke casting where like the the secondhand man that Edward Norton has uh, is this guy Kostya played by like NFL great Tony Siragusa. Yeah. Which I think is so like so hilarious. And like it's a good performance. He's, like and it has a real arc to it as well. For athlete cameos, I, he is in a lot of the movie and is way better at a Russian accent than anybody on this podcast would ever be. Yeah, Tony Siragusa stumbled through a Ukrainian accent so John Cena could be 
and some Hulu movies. That's right. I don't know. Um, but I think, too, like this movie also makes some good – it has some good moves because it knows its audience of like – what was then premium cable television by throwing like Isaiah Whitlock Jr. in the mix as a cop. Yeah. You know, I think that that's such a, and doing his iconic, like she is such a, it's such a funny wink at the kind of, the the space this movie feels like it occupies. That's, you know, of course referencing the wire. Mm -hmm. I just, as long as we're on the topic, in addition to she it, uh, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. Um, at one point when he, when he's got Monty and he's telling him about the seven-year sentences, he goes, I do believe you're fucked. <laughs> Royally. <laughs> I love that. But the whole bit, because the, the movie has these like comic moments too yeah. where the cops come into Monty's apartment where he lives with Rosario Dawson and there's like the, you know, there was a really nice sort of connecting scene before where they were like in the bathtub together talking about having children. The DEA shows up and like they know where the fucking drugs and the money are, but they're they're just playing. Like they're playing with their food a little bit, you know, and Whitlock's talking about like the couch is so uncomfortable and the other detective says, maybe it's your posture. <laughs> You know, like just to sort of play that, like they know the drugs are in the couch, you know, and I think that speaks to just like really good screenwriting, just the amount of time these these bureaucratic like drugs and narcotic detectives, just like the fun that they're allowed to have in their day job. So Benioff adapts his own novel here, um, which is if you've pointed you pointed out in the past is not all that common. Um, he's pretty damn good at it, uh, foreshadowing the career ahead, being a showrunner for Game of Thrones. Um, and then yeah, he also uh, has to add in some 9/11 resonances himself and and one of the bits of research that popped out to me, so Monty has this this speech, that he does in the bar bathroom where he sort of like spews like racist and xenophobic vitriol, like every ethnic group and every sort of side character that he has encountered in, in, in New York, uh, including his friends, including himself, including his own father, um, which is really, really similar to the do the right thing interlude, but it's apparently all from the book, which is so surprising. It is, yeah. I mean, except for the Osama bin Laden stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, but I think, again, like the way that this movie is a 9-11 movie is that, you know, even this like cool drug dealer to cool people New York guy that Edward Norton is, like who seems like he owns the nightclub, like even that guy's like full of racial anger and he's full of anger at the other who he sees as taking his piece of the pie. And I think really like 9-11 really like set off this thing where people were so feeling that and so given this like black and white interpretation of how like these other racial groups behaved, you know, that seeing that spew over just from seeing like a little bit of graffiti on the mirror of his father's bar, like can set that off. Like, I think that's what we're talking about at the top. Like social media has captured all of that rage, like in the preceding 20 years. What I think the residents do the right thing too is great because you also, even with this extra knowledge, Spike Lee has made movies about the ready to pop boils of hatred <laughs> that these different groups have for exactly. each other. Exactly. And here it is 15 years with kerosene all over it. Fuck the Russians in Brighton Beach. Mobster thugs sitting in cafes, sipping tea on little glasses, 
sugar cubes between their teeth. Wheeling and dealing and scheming. Go back where you fucking came from. Fuck the black-hatted Hasidim strolling up and down 47th Street in their dirty gabardine with their dandruff selling South African apartheid diamonds. Come on, your wife deserves this. Fuck the Wall Street brokers. Self-styled masters of the universe. Michael Douglas, Gordon Gecko, wannabe motherfuckers figuring out new ways to rob hardworking people blind. Send those Enron assholes to jail for fucking life. You think Bush and Cheney didn't know about that shit? Give me a fucking break. But where I think it's more mature than the the do the right thing, like people in each other's face is like, it's really taking an introspective look at Edward Norton going through like the different levels of grief. Like really over this full day, he kind of goes through those different steps, the bargaining of it all. That's kind of where he is then in the, in the bar scene, which is a pretty early on scene. You don't think but maybe that's kind the of, step anger? Maybe that's anger, but I almost think that he's sort of, yeah, he's lashing out. You're right. But you're right. He definitely works through it all, all the way to, is reverie one of the five stages of grief? Last second reverie? Acceptance. (laughs) Oh, okay. Acceptance. Um, Yeah. But you're, you're very much, you're very much right. Yeah. So if we could step back for a second, I think that it's connected to what we're talking about. There's no moment in this movie where Spike Lee says, like, you deserve it, America. Because I think that would be a ex- exceedingly harsh thing to say, considering the tragic loss of life of many, many innocent people. So this movie never says that. But this is a movie almost entirely about recompense and culpability and everybody pays, man. So compared to other 9-11 films, which tend to come from like the viewpoint almost of like the American consciousness of you or I at age 11 or 13 of like, oh my God, what? Everything's changing. Spike Lee, of course, comes from it from like a continuum of, of leveling critiques at everything America is guilty of. So he never says it outright, but everyone in his movie is guilty of something. And the air is filled with guilt at this time. I think it's also, and maybe this is the opposite of what you're saying, but I also think it's a a pretty hopeful movie. Mm. You know, I think what's narratively interesting about the arcs between these young men Uh, getting older by the day is the fact that they are, they do have the kind of relationships with each other that they like scratch all of the necessary itches of their desires. Mm -hmm. You know, like you start the film with, you know, Monty's kind of like giving up the, he's trying to find closure and also like put out in the world, the things that he cares about in a way that he knows they will be cared for. And on the other side of it, you have these two pretty like shallow men looking for meaning kind of wrapped up in like what their own identity means to the external world. And what he gives them is that he gives them those gifts of, you know, having companionship on one side and something to be responsible for. And the other side, a reasonable way to let out all the anger that his one friend feels, even though he is, you know, by 
society standards a successful guy. He just wants to like shake out the resentment he feels that, you know, he's from where he is from. So something to be responsible for is Philip Seymour Hoffman getting Doyle the dog at the end. Correct. And the letting and out then the anger. Bell- Barry, Barry Pepper, Pepper beating, beating the, the shit out, out of his. Because yeah. I think for them, like Monty represents not necessarily like getting away from the like sort of you know, a scholarship world that they came from, but he just kind of like played in the underbelly. So to like truly separate from him and for at least for Barry Pepper to feel like, oh, I'm a a big shot Wall Street guy. Like I'm not a poor kid from Brooklyn. You know, he had to like fight the guy, fight the guy with no friends, beat up the guy that you could beat up to show everyone else that you're a man. That's interesting. Um, I guess I. It's interesting you read this as hopeful because I read that as a punishment. Um, is no, a I way think he of, got what he wanted in the end. That's true. I mean, yeah, you're right. He does have to let it out, but it's also, I think, I think seeing the calm in his face, like sitting there at like Battery Park, where he's like no longer upset, and he's just like, I got my my suit and tie on. I'm like ready to go to work. I feel good. I'm less. His eyes are no longer bloodshot. If anything, he looks the best that he does throughout the film after he beats the shit out of Edward Norton. I mean, Barry Pepper looks pretty great in this movie. Oh, the pep. Peak Pepper. This is peak Pepper for sure. Although He's a pretty he, good actor. Oh, he is. I, why did it not work out for Barry Pepper? Yeah, what? bring back the pep. We should have like a Brendan Fraser renaissance for Barry Pepper. I did see he was in sort of like a straight to VOD kind of like John Wick knockoff where it's just him walking down an alley on the cover and it's called like Vengeance or something. Um, Wasn't there a movie that Sam Raimi did where he's like in a trapped in a basement and an alligator's going to get him during a hurricane in the South? That's not a Raimi movie. What's that movie called? Came out like two years ago. I'll find it. He's the dad. He plays the dad and there's, yeah, they're trapped in a crocodile basement. Shit. What's that called? Jaws? It's called... Jaws 2? Crawl. Crawl. Yep. And it was produced by Sam Raimi. There you go. So, Um, take that. Do you call this a movie that Toby Maguire did? I don't think that's yes. not how I... <laughs> I lost my mind when I was watching the opening credits of the 25th hour and it said Toby fucking Maguire was an executive producer on this. <laughs> it gives it a certain level of like credibility in 2002, I would say. I think Spider-Man? Spike Lee is enough credibility. You know what I was thinking of? Philip Seymour Hoffman. Is so I mean he's very good in this role. He's very good in like every single thing ever. But watching him, I was like, first of all, I miss him. Second, I think he could have played every part in the movie. I think he could have played Monty. I definitely think he could have played Frank. I think he probably could have played Monty's dad. <laughs> he's absolutely just the best. There it's ever definitely was. the least. Because it's like the least interesting performance of the movie, I would say. It's the least interesting character. I mean, yes, he has like the weird kind of taboo, will he, won't he with Anna Paquin. But ultimately, like I think the more interesting acting is like the Barry Pepper role of breaking down this toxic masculinity into a very like insecure boy. Uh, 
You're right. So. I think it's a great performance, but you're right. It is kind of. The but least I agree. I, I, this is all to say I agree with you. He has more comedic moments, actually, where it's just sort of funny, like how in over his head he is with this like 17 year old who, um, for better or worse, probably worse, like is interested in behaving like an adult woman. Um, and like well, that, that's the... the one dolly shot of her kind of float the double dolly shot of her floating off the dance floor and then you get the reverse shot of jacob just like asleep in the booth was so funny to me he's really yeah he's got some good like very drunk moments that it's not like stupid drunk it's yeah. like the bathroom's up the stairs it's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> and when he's trying to have that conversation with anna paquin where she goes like that's what i love about you alinsky and then pauses for like five seconds he's like what is it and she's like huh <laughs> It's like, what is it you love about me? And then there's another five seconds. He's like, oh, never mind. <laughs> so good. Um, it is I, really good. Can I say something that I, it's not, I don't dislike this movie. I really like it. One, Edward Norton's performance, does Monty, I mean, it is a Spike Lee movie. This is true of many Spike Lee movies. Does he seem more like an idea of a character than like a character character? No, I think the movie works pretty hard in setting up that idea that like he's always been front and center, you know, sometimes literally like when it takes him back to the school and he's got the dog there and he sees his picture like behind the glass of when they won the state championship or whatever a million years ago. But I really think it is kind of saying something more about the Gen X of it where it's like here are all these like guys who were going to do great things and like they were close friends and like one of them did something and they all came from like either money or money adjacents uh and you know or at least jacob did um but yeah and then like they all kind of became who they were going to become so i I think i disagree with you that the you know this is just a guy who's he's almost like a like a drug dealing willie loman or something where he like has all the trappings of what should be a happy life but when he's talking to frank at the end about you know oh i should have just gotten out six months earlier and just invested the cash that i had and i would have set myself up but i got greedy like, I don't think he really believes that. I think he was into the hustle and he was into the lifestyle, you know, the way that Frank is into his kind of like legally doing the same thing. I think that's a fair assertion. We just don't like see any of that. And th- this, is, this is sort of just in the construction of the movie, of course, that being in one day, there's just like, there's a lot about Monty's characterization that you just take the movie's word for. Just like other people being like, this is... This is how he was. Oh, he had all he had yeah. all the potential in the world, but he blew it. And it's like I, I guess I just. But you t- don't get that in like the flashback. Like I think what's most brilliant about the flashback scene with Rosario Dawson on the swings is not necessarily his interaction with her, but the idea that he meets the guy that you see like who's wearing rags in the opening scene oh, as yeah. like a businessman who's like all buttoned up and like he's the one who actually like introduces him to the Russian guys mm-hmm. and he like gets that phone number that he burns up and that's just like but that's just like a guy going through his day. You know, there's something they said. I think there's something deep about seeing this guy like you are seeing him do his work. He's just sort of like charming his way from moment to moment and Mm -hmm. like getting the things that, you know, his father's then going to talk about in the car, but trying to do it his own way. And ultimately, like, that's the 
you know, sort of the parable here is like you can't you can't get all the trappings of mainstream life and be like a big fucking drug dealer. Very true. One of the things I I thought was going to kind of bother me, but that I ended up liking because it's such a it's such a risk. It's such a take is, you know, uh, prison rape is discussed a lot at length in this movie like a lot like four or five times it's very clear that like this is the worst of what he will face which on the one hand i'm like this is just like like the amount of like racial and sexual kind of panic going on here which like not to make light of prison rape nobody wants that but um but still screenwriting wise you could easily get around not discussing prison rape by just saying it's a 25 year sentence and then it's just time and his life is over but the movie stays with that idea to like really show again i think like where these guys are coming from and like the ugly side of like their terror and their rage as like 2002 guys and then you also have the scene where monty when he's being interrogated by Isaiah whitlock jr kind of overconfidently plays the card of like you seen this white face you see the fact that i have nothing on my record i'll sit in front of that judge and be like oh i'm so sorry it'll never happen again i got in with some bad people and i think when the movie goes there that he has the self-awareness to use his youth and his whiteness and his privilege to supposedly get out of the punishment the 25th hour wraps back around to be like, nah, you'll be punished uh, equitably with how brazenly you're going to treat this. Um, it's not it's not a safe choice. Yeah. Yeah, it's subversive, frankly, to see a white protagonist actually face the consequences of his actions because so many narratives like this are, oh, well, he got, he like, he gets away with it at the end. Like, everything's fine. Or, like, make him a martyr of, like, oh, he goes down guns blazing, like, on the lamb or something. And this movie refuses to give that character that kind of Hollywood ending, which I think just adds to the idea that it is a pretty deep character. Like, it's a character we've also never seen before. For, I would feel like, or at least put through a situation that Hollywood would otherwise be pretty nervous, I think, uh, especially, you know, in this time, too, and especially with all the politics around exactly what you're talking about, this idea of you know, these men, you know, 2002 being like, what the fuck? Like, what do we do? We can't go to jail. We're going to get raped. Like, that's the worst thing that could happen, right. you know? And it's, 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 yeah, it's really interesting to see this kind of paradigm shift in a movie like this of what masculinity clearly is, is at this time. And like almost, it's almost a satire. The whole movie is almost a satire of how like men who are afraid of their own masculinities deal with situations that are beyond their control. Sure. And if not satire, just like the different like fantasies that we all, that, that they would live in. And I think that that's what the, we got to talk about the, the ending, which is probably the best Spike Lee coda that there is. Um, Hell yeah. It's, it's, it is as excessive as any other Spike Lee coda. I mean, by the time that they're in Old Face and they're showing Rosario Dawson and Ed Norton, the part that like almost sinks it for me is just like, you guys had a son who was a 45-year-old Greek man. This white guy, this Puerto Rican <laughs> yeah, woman, these, like this, this beautiful biracial these? family, all wearing white on Christmas morning. Yeah, 
who are these kids? Um, but yeah, that's. But that I mean, speaks to like the satire. Like I almost felt like this movie had like really similarities between like the seven year itch or something, where it's like playing out these fantasies in ways that just like in retrospect at least are really just kind of deconstructing toxic masculinity and like what were what the role is supposed to look like. Uh, well, I think it's as much if not more like an American fantasy. Like here's a guy, Hell yeah. a, a New Yorker living in New York at one of its hardest ever moments who's sort of dreaming of like, what if I'm a, you know, not, not so veiled. Like what if I'm a cowboy and his dad's like, just go be a cowboy. Like that's just always go buy been. a beer at this bar. <laughs> like, don't forget like this country's always here for you. Um, and it just, but I love that, that monologue about manifest destiny. I mean, he's not wrong. Like, that's the thing. Like this country was literally built on people who like couldn't make it for whatever reason, like in these like sort of colony States, just like moving West and like shooting things and deciding that that was theirs now. Sure. But the, I mean, where I think the movie is clearly commenting, um, you know, Spike Lee, our number one critiquer of John Ford <laughs> is like, uh, the innocence that Brian Cox lays into that monologue and the further and further it goes with the innocence and the rose colored glasses of like, and eventually maybe natural can come find you. It's just like, that's, that's not how it works. It's not going to happen. Like you have to pay like this country. There is, there is a transactional morality and violence to the way this country is built. And not to spoil it. It's a, it's an old movie. He's still going to prison at the end, right? Oh, hell yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> That's what They're I thought. They're not driving west. Yeah, and there's a cruel irony, too, to the end of that monologue where he's just like, live your life the way it should have been. Yeah. And looking back, it's like, because you've seen a lot of the, you know, moments in these people's lives, like at least in the past five or ten years, to know that, like, this is the way that it was supposed to be. Yeah. You know, like, these people did make their own choices, and they chased their own dreams, and in many instances they were unhappy because they did get them uh so that's like kind of a and that's a tip off too that i think this this movie knows it's it's a fantasy um Mm -hmm. and i think it's also spike lee's way of saying that like lol white people think that they can just drive west yeah (laughs) i mean if it's makai pfeiffer just taking the train west at the end of clockers that's different but right this is a little bit too baked into our do you feel like the film The Green Knight kind of stole the yes. 25th hour coda from the 25th hour? This is what I love about The Green Knight. I watched them the same weekend. Um, can I ask you a question? Please. I, I, this is your favorite Spike Lee movie, right? This is definitely my favorite Spike Lee movie. And I was just thinking about it earlier. This may be just like one of my favorite movies, period. Cheers to that. Why don't we tell people how we rate movies on this show and then we'll give 25th Hour the rating that I think you want to give it. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. 
Good-bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad-good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Tut, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I believe in my heart that the 25th hour, sorry, that 25th hour, I ruined it, is good, good. I think this is such an underrated movie that really kind of captures a like early 21st century crime noir anger thing that I think, you know, a lot of movies have been influenced by in the latter 20 years. Uh, you know, and I think it's Spike Lee doing something really subversive in a studio way that is so fascinating because like the talent is there on the screen. We didn't even talk about the fucking music, but the Terrence Blanchard score is something I just like put on in the car. It's amazing. You know, it's so jazzy and fun and also scary and really conveying that terror of, you know, post 9-11. And I think for that reason, it is a watchable movie that allows the one to a viewer to synthesize like what that six months after did feel like, um, but not in a, you know, a turn off kind of way. Yeah. The Blanchard score is amazing. And it's, I mean, like in the, the title credits where you just see the pillars of light that were, Oh yeah. The lights going up for the, but it's like him doing his best, like Elmer Bernstein. He's like doing the 10 commandments score, but like with a little like street marimba involved. Um, it's, and it's just like ama- this wailing woman's voice, well, so yeah. good. And it just reinforces the idea, like this movie in its own way is like kind of a passion play. Like it is, there is a, like a there is a sentencing happening here. Obviously, I also right. think it's a it's, good. I also think it's a good good. Um, for the sake of geekery, I would put. This is maybe my f- fifth favorite Spike Lee movie. What are the other four? I personally, it's no Mo Better Blues, but it's would definitely put, better than than Bamboozled. <laughs> I would put Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, Crooklyn, and Inside Man ahead of it. What about Clockers? Love Clockers. Clockers is really good. I honestly like that three, four, five, six. Those are all really about the same level. It's a really, it's a really good movie. is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And I love to, I almost love that this movie is a 9-11 movie without trying to be like about the 9-11 victims fund. Right. Worth 2021, actually 2020, according to IMDb, whatever. Um, An attorney in Washington, D.C. battles against cynicism, bureaucracy, and politics to help the victims of 9-11. I don't know if I agree with that synopsis. I think the victims of 9-11 help this lawyer with his cynicism, bureaucracy, and politics in order to help them. 
the shock from the attacks in New York and D.C. reverberate across the entire nation. What we're facing is a national emergency. We are proposing the Treasury Fund offering compensation to the victims. Ken, we'll have to negotiate all settlements. The victims and their families will be compensated based on economic value loss. That's where the formula comes in. 80%. Any fewer come aboard, the lawsuits that result could crater the economy. Why is it an equal payment for everybody? My daughters were just as much as anybody in a corner office. My wife died that day, and everything about this formula offends me. Sorry to hear that. But we can't bend the rules for every case. Why not? Congress gives you broad discretion, but when 7,000 citizens ask you not to be treated like some numbers on a spreadsheet, you act like that law came down from Sinai. I know the rules. State law says we were nothing to each other. But I'm the one he called before the end. How many minutes did you have to get into Worth before you were like, why isn't Stanley Tucci the protagonist of this film? Exactly. About an hour in, I'm like, where the hell is Tucci? Because you just kept assuming that he... So he's Tucci plays uh, one of the victim's husbands who ends up... Charles Wolf, real guy. Yeah, and he ends up rallying people to this group called fix the fund which may or may not throw its support behind the government sponsored compensation fund or may throw it into a class action lawsuit against the airlines which would um ruin the fund and also these fucking airlines bankrupt the country that was something like i never heard that before what do, what do we really believe that if the 9-11 victims had sued the airlines the economy would have cratered well, that's the same thing they believed during the beginning of COVID, that if the government didn't bail out the airlines, it would tank the economy. Airlines are that important, huh? These fucking airlines. Service keeps getting worse and worse, and we keep bailing them out. There are other ways to get around people. Bird scooters. Uh... I tried to have a car for a while. It didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, R.I.P. If anyone noticed that the Patreon went up to $4 a membership, it's because I need a new car. Can I just describe my experience watching this movie? Please. Great. I think, so it's 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 directed by uh, Sarah Colangelo, who made a movie for Netflix a few years ago called Kindergarten Teacher with Maggie Gyllenhaal. It's supposed to be good, I haven't seen it. And Max Borenstein wrote this, and he's like the the sage voice behind like all the Godzilla Kong and Godzilla V Kong films. But this is the kind of movie where like, as it's making like the plot turns that it needs to make, it kind of feels like it's from the guy who wrote the Godzilla and Kong films. Cause like normally you're just like, <laughs> if King Kong showed up here, this movie would certainly have somewhere to go. But if we were relying on character development to move the plot forward, well, that could be why Worth ends up where it ends up. Yeah, there's a lot of scenes in this movie of people on phones at the end of conversations that really don't further the movie much. They're just there to be like, they were doing God's work, and here's a montage to prove it. It's kind of, yeah, this is a little bit like if you, um, it flirts at the beginning with like being kind of a process-based movie akin to like 
the insider, all the president's men, or spotlight. Spotlight's the easy comparison, I think. Or even like oh Tom my Hanks's god, it's such a spotlight. Dark waters, like wannabe. Dark waters, yes. Um, but it it reveals how weird it is when like you don't you don't encounter the world through process, and the process is just kind of sprinkled on the end, and you get like these really weird, like dumb moments where like michael keaton looks at a whiteboard that says goal 80 percent signed up 36 percent and he just goes it's not enough <laughs> like oh this is our this is the guy the movie's been saying is a numbers guy and i see why you texted me about this but i thought it was the funniest thing that i'd ever heard about this movie that otherwise is like a pretty somber movie is. is the fact that in this movie the logic dictates that The president of the United States appointed Michael Keaton to tell a 9-11 firefighter's wife that he had a double life and had two other kids by a different woman. And that was the crux of people not suing the airlines into oblivion. And it's Mark Maron who is the I mistress's or lawyer. Or a guy who sounds like Mark yeah. Maron on the phone. It's, have we looked at IMDb for this? It, it's absolutely it Mark, Mark Maron. Okay. It's but 100% like, Mark Maron, but it's so weird it's that so, Mark Maron like, doesn't show up in this movie. Why not, by that logic, Like, why not Joe Rogan? <laughs> you know? Why not Sarah Koenig? Why not anyone? <laughs> yeah, why not anyone? Just, Why not Chance Solemn Pfeiffer of Noah Ballard? Of, yeah, just famous podcasting voices being like, hey, Michael Keaton, if you don't tell her, I'm going to tell her. To which I would say, what the fuck, Michael Keaton? Go, you go ahead and tell her. You're the mistress's lawyer. Why would I have no connection to her whatsoever? You should probably tell her. I think she'd take it better. Oh, my God. Um, Yeah. This movie, like, so it starts in a place that, like, feels like a good movie, right? It does, Like, it yes. feels like this is an awards-level, like, this is how it happened kind of movie. For the first 45 minutes, I almost thought it kind of was a good movie. I was, like, really, um, I would say pretty emotionally moved by some of the early stories, you know? Yeah. And I think all of these movies kind of have that trick up their sleeve that at one point or another you're going to just hear some heinous story about like how someone died in some super tragic way and like the how horrible the family feels about that some loved one that they have give a monologue and this movie is chock full of that i would say to almost an offensive degree Uh, it's not very deft with how there's there's a I think the high point of the movie is uh, Gail Rankin from from Glow, who plays like kind of like the wolf wrestler. She gives like a really kind of curiously level monologue about like how her husband, like moments before he died, was like joking about the building evac, like oh you think I have to get out, and it's a really well acted kind of piece. I think that's where I got a little misty, yeah. Yeah, and that was also what reminded me of Spotlight, because Spotlight is so deft about the way it weaves in victim testimony most of it very properly placed to show you what the journalists and probably your blind spots are but then this movie just has triple that some of it just to hurt your feelings really right that's the thing it's not all done for dramatic effects and i really feel like the I wonder if it's historically accurate that, like, there was the firefighter with the double life that, like, came into play. Probably. I would think no. No. But maybe. <laughs> it's based on a book, right? 
It's based on Ken Feinberg's book, What Is Life Worth? Right. So and you'd think that they wouldn't be able, and like maybe some of those details were changed both or in the book or in the movie, whatever, who cares? But this really does, by the end of it, like move on from the spotlight of it all to move to into that like kind of almost Disney level, like can this grown adult change his mind and open up his heart to the folksy people that need the money? Yeah. And and that's what it is. Like he steps out of a goofy modern opera and the Tooch is there being like, hey, have you thought about not being such a fucking Grinch? Yeah. Keaton's whole thing is we have to be impartial. We have to stick to the formula. We can't make special cases for... Um, this person who died in the Pentagon attack, who has a has a life partner, who because he's gay according to Virginia state law can't get any money. We can, we can't make exceptions like that. There's nothing in the formula like that. And so that's what he's been saying for an hour and twenty minutes is we can't consider these cases individually. And in the uh, Deus ex character development scene you're talking about, he wakes up and he's like. I will consider the cases individually. And we're just like, I thought but you- not the gays. I'm, I, I'm drawing the line at the gays. Well, Virginia Virginia drew the line at the gays. Um, You're right. But it was just like, wait, you mean you, you could have? You could have just like specialized everyone's like payment? Like I didn't realize you could do it. But he can. Yeah, I mean- well, that was what the weird part about the, at least the opening of the movie compared to the ending of the movie is like, I thought he did it like because he could do whatever he wanted to do. And then he's like, yeah, I can do whatever I want to do because the president said I could. And then he was like, but we have to do it the way other people want to do it. And that, I, so I didn't get and there was no pushback. There was no there was like that scene where, oh, uh, Ashcroft canceled my meeting with him. And that was like the amount of pushback he got for giving all these people the money that they were owed. I guess. I don't remember the 9-11 Victims Fund, at least not the initial one, being contentious at all. I remember when, like, Jon Stewart kept them from closing off the the Victims Fund to, like, people who discovered illnesses, like, years later. Right. Uh, but I didn't remember it being this. And maybe some of it is, a, you know, a gift for fiction. Yeah. And here's the thing I want to say is, like, in considering all of these movies and like what 9-11 means to American film. Like it's much different to see like the individuals who lost loved ones and like their individual stories, um, you know, kind of laid bare once again. Um, That's a lot different than the cultural and political and, like historical understanding of 9/11 which i would argue is largely like uh, violent and f- fascist and painted over as opposed to these people's actual kind of experience um so there's a lot of potential for humanity in this movie i'm just not sure it was like deployed very intelligently or effectively i just think it's so weird especially if you have a movie like this nowadays like how do you not have some aspect of it be the fucking tens of thousands of people who would end up getting sick or dying because of 
the response to 9-11 and the health concerns of Lower Manhattan and how those people then benefited in this larger fund. And that was the actual, at least in my recollection, the actual contentious thing about the fund was like, how far should it extend? Because of a lot of reckless decisions made by the national government right after 9-11 in an attempt to like get things back to normal again, you know, which which smacks is so similar to the position we're kind of in now of like, well, we got to, you know, they hate us for our free, the, the virus hates us for our freedom if we don't, you know, get back to Old Navy by the end of the day, you know. Well, the, I don't know why I picked on Old Navy. The prices have never been lower. I know. I go there every week. I throw my mask into the parking lot and run into the Old Navy. To buy a six ninety nine button down. Um, to buy a... So I can freedom tuck my t-shirt into uh, my khaki shorts. Michael Keaton knows a little something about the freedom tuck, I think. Um, let's, let's talk about Michael Keaton's wardrobe in this movie. Okay. Incredible. Keaton... It's it's too bad because I really at the beginning of the movie I was like first of all there's no need for Michael Keaton to be doing this accent whatsoever second of all the accent is not good he he's doing it's such an amalgam of Boston and New York at one point and I'm gonna butcher this he says the word answers twice in a row and he goes we're gonna need some answers answers like he uses two <laughs> different accents on the same word. It's like Keaton, this is all over the place. And then you're but I'm kinda like, you know what? There's nobody I would rather like spend some time with. Like he's carrying this. But then as the character like f- failed to develop and then developed in just the cheapest ways, I was kinda like, should he and Tucci have switched roles? Would Ke- would Keaton have been better in as like the pinch hitter? Um What if Ken was just played by Tate Donovan? I love Tate Donovan in this. What a slimy bastard. He's, he's so, so good at that, He's though. so good at that, yeah. Um, he, he's the Billy Crudup in spotlight of this movie, for sure. Oh, my. <laughs> that's exactly it. It says in the script somewhere. Think Billy Crudup in, in, in spotlight. But sitting down. You know how Billy Crudup's always standing up? Please sit. None of that in this movie. Always sitting. I think this movie, in order to have this movie's kind of focus in what I would consider to be the right place. I would have it be almost like an experimental 90 minute movie that is just Michael Keaton interviewing people and their different stories and just have them kind of echo each other. And, you know, time can pass. Um, So you get, you get the stories of like the, the people who were in charge of the, the recovery and, and the, the cleanup and what happened to them um, and you don't need, yeah, you don't need the giant like character development contrivance because that only goes to show that the POV of the movie is really flawed in the first place. Did you ever see that movie? This is another 9-11 grieving movie. Uh, the Guys with uh, Sigourney Weaver and Anthony LaPaglia? No, I've never heard of that. It's just like a fire chief sort of, it's sort of like a very small movie and it was based on a play that came out right after 9-11 where a fire chief just like recounts to... I think a reporter or an insurance person or something, just like the eight guys that he lost on 9-11 and like their stories. Uh, it's just sort of like eight monologues and eight sort of scenes. It's interesting. Um, hmm. And it seems like what you're, what you're hungry for. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this chance. Is the one saving grace of this movie the fact that 
the clear standout actor to play Andrew Cuomo in the Andrew Cuomo biopic that's certainly coming from Netflix is clearly Chris Tardio, who like has the perfect like young Cuomo thing. Is Chris Tardio in Sopranos? Yes. He's the one who takes a shot at Chris. Um, Do we think that he's a big enough name? Are we sure he's not Chris Cuomo? Maybe he's Chris Cuomo, but he's he's pretty good in this. God, I really don't hey, want... Hey, pal. I really don't want to watch the movie you're describing as much as it is coming. Yeah, Jay Roach already has uh, in development. I would, I would bet you the Chris Cuomo from the producers of Paterno come Cuomo. <laughs> It's too fucking real. Do, re- do you think Al Pacino is too old to play Andrew Cuomo? Nope. I think it's perfect. <laughs> That'll be his opus. It'll be Kevorkian. Um, well, he also played, what's his name? The mu- the the music producer who killed all Phil those Spector. people. It's Phil Spector. <laughs> I love his, his, uh, his trio of God. unlikable white men. Right. <laughs> I'm ready for the, uh, I'm ready for Pacino in a scene with somebody playing Bill de Blasio where he just goes, Bill, sit down! (laughs) As Cuomo, of course. Incredible. Um, Yeah, they'll get like, uh, who's that really tall British guy from Hello Ladies? He can play de Blasio. (laughs) (laughs) Why not Blake Griffin? (laughs) Sure. Why not Kevin Durant? Um, okay, let's see. Um, I almost called it waste. Uh, worth <laughs> tipping the hand a little bit. Um, I I think this movie was on track to be a to be a good bad, and then it just it. There's no reason for it to be two hours, and it just completely loses the thread after about one. Um, as much as I enjoy. I have to give a shout out again in the spotlight illusion. The fact that Tucci keeps being in these movies, one of our best bald men, and he keeps having these sort of like balding toupees where it's just like, that is the most asinine use of a toupee I've ever seen. Um, It's truly ridiculous. Do you think his like upper West side back mullet was a toupee? Oh, I think so. Interesting. Because I think he can probably like grow around the edges. Sure. But I think then they put like a weird like half head thing on top. You think he's wearing like a half head? Do you think? <laughs> yeah, Worth is a bad bed. Worth is <laughs> is worthless. Oh my Worth God. is a bad bed. No. And I just think it's unforgivable to in 2020... To, like, not have the wherewithal to say anything subversive in a 9-11 bureaucracy movie. Like, how boring is that to not, like, it doesn't have to be Oliver Stone, but it, like, has to be, like, hey, maybe, you know, those rich people who said that they didn't want to cap on how much money they get. Like, maybe let's see some of those fucking people. Right. Like, maybe they're the people that they talk to, too. Because, like, that was the kind of thing. It was, like, a rich versus poor kind of conflict between the two groups but like you never see the rich like the rich also had people who died like that they didn't expect to die 
You know, yeah. they're not just trying to make money, but they're also like, you know, if a CEO of a major company died, like that's millions of dollars that are not coming in any longer. Yeah, I think the movie doesn't make good on its title. It easily could have done more with like, what does money mean to people? Because you get these yes. two juxtaposed things. Seeing of- what people do with the money too, I thought would be would have been more interesting. And then like maybe you pick up like in 2003 when this shit's already been signed and then more people are like, hey, I'm one of the dozens of firefighters who developed breast cancer because of trying to pick people out of the rubble, you know, for the, in the weeks after 9-11. Like, do you, do you have a check for me? Right. And then like following up with the people of like, what do these people use their money for? Like, was it for charitable things? Did people spend it on like ridiculous, you know, lottery winner stuff? Like that would be, I think, a more compelling movie to show how money doesn't make anything better. Right. Rain over me. Let's rewrite it. I think we did. Just I did. say bad, bad. Yeah, you did. Maybe in more words, but you did. Rain over me, two thousand seven. A man who lost his family in the September 11 attack on New York City runs into his old college roommate. Rekindling the friendship is the one thing that appears to help the man recover from his... Jesus Christ. (laughs) This is a terrible synopsis. I'll try to do it from my gut here. Okay. Uh, Weirdo dentist runs into his college roommate who was the soul reminding... A lapsed dentist who's also his last name is Feynman. Um, wasn't wasn't Michael Keaton's last name Feynman or was it Feinberg? I think it was Feinberg. Very Jewish category. The nine eleven grief films. Yeah. And Feynman, the lapsed dentist, is like living in this sort of bizarre world funded by the nine eleven. Uh, victims fund compensation that he received where he like lives in this apartment and collects guitars and vinyl and video games and stuff like that because he can't process the trauma of losing his wife, three kids and dog. Oh, hey, hey, Charlie, Charlie. I ran into Charlie Feynman today. Really? How is he? Hey, Charlie, it's Alan, man. We know each other. Are you kidding me? Who's Charlie Feynman, daddy? He was my college roommate. I haven't talked to him in a long time. We were college roommates? Yeah, you slept naked most nights. And you were a sleepwalker. It was the worst two years of my life. He lost his whole family in a plane crash. He's lost now. Charlie Feynman for Dr. Johnson. You don't have an appointment, sir? Oh, we're friends. We were college roommates. And? I used to sleep in the nude. Play guitar, Charlie. Johnson, you're barely a dentist. You pull people's teeth all day. It don't matter. You stay out all night? That's not okay. I was stuck in Charlie world. I couldn't leave. Come on now, stab his wing. Guys have guy hobbies, right? They play poker, they golf. What's going on, Charlie? Let's hang out. Right now? Yeah, wake up. Come on. Can you go out? Is he allowed out? Don't do that. Don't ask my wife permission for me to go out. All right, you're right. Can you go out? A lot of girls here, Charlie. What? You're single now. After what happened with your family and everything. Oh, whoa, hey, I don't have a family. Johnson? I know you don't. Who sent you here? 
Don Cheadle is the protagonist. Adam Sandler is the antagonist. The, <laughs> the antagonist. Which right from the jump, Sandler trying to use his powers, the flipping out man-child powers for seriousness is, you know, the mixed bag of all mixed bags. But the thing is, in a movie like Punch Drunk Love, where he's just so childish, you, I don't think you can really um, hold any reproach for him. Or Uncut Gems, where, by God, he's such a scumbag, but there's never not one second where I'm not rooting for him. This movie finds itself on the opposite end of that pole where he, you know, has like crawled back into his kind of like murmuring, stammering, six-year-old man-child body, but I'm not really rooting for him. I feel like, and the movie has positioned me to root for Don Cheadle, and this guy is kind of a pain in the ass. Well, that's a weird proposition for a film is like, hey, what if the antagonist was a 9-11 victim? (laughs) And then what if the protagonist was a dentist who keeps getting sexual harassment claims against him? Well, to be fair, that's also in in worth the 9-11 victims are kind of the antagonist too. Classic movie antagonist is either one or more 9-11 victims. Yes. Um, you've referred to possibly the movie's weirdest subplot, a movie full of half-baked <laughs> weird subplots, where Saffron Burroughs, the titular Deep Blue Sea, is in... <laughs> Movie, this nine, this very overt 9-11 movie opens with Saffron Burroughs and uh, and um, Don Cheadle and Don Cheadle in a dentist's office, and he's like, "So what do you what what do you need?" And she's like, "Let me suck your dick." Yeah, that's how this 9-11 movie opens, and I don't like know what to like. Is this a broad comedy? Like, where is this movie? For you, the, the font of the opening credits leads me to believe like this believes itself an awards caliber movie, right? Yes. And like the New York opening shots are like trying very hard to establish a mise en scène, if you will. It, it seems like you won't. <laughs> I'm always, I'm always a little prickly about what you mean by mise en scène. It's trying to establish what is in the frames of the film. It is trying to establish, yes, like what is contained in this movie. Like the New York it's trying to represent. And you've used and it then correctly. clearly these like Los Angeles sound stages where like the dentist's <laughs> office and the apartment is. You know, they were like, the, the crew of this movie was in New York for like two days to shoot a lot of like scooter B-roll. Yeah. And they shot then most of the movie in these elaborate sound stages uh, that don't look anything like New York apartments. Yeah, our director is uh, Mike Binder, who is... From done- the director of The Upside of Love and Black and White. Upside of Anger? Oh, what did I say? Upside of Love? Upside of Love. That, I don't think that's That's the script Upside you and of I are working on. Um, yeah. Black he- and White, that Kevin Costner race movie, yuck. <laughs> oh, did he direct that? Hell yeah. Oh, and of course you are thinking of black or white, unfortunately. (laughs) It is a zero-sum choice. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah, one or the other. Did he do McFarland USA or was that another misguided white guy? Um, I, probably. I mean, there's so many in, the, in that town. So... Yeah, what the movie is 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 weird because yes, it is sort of like, um, you know, really overwrought awards fodder. But then because failed failed awards fodder, I guess that's what fodder means. Um, but because Adam Sandler is in it, there's a there's definitely like like dick and breast and like tee hee hee stuff, which is like, there, yeah, too what? much tee hee hee for CSP. That's exactly right. I just want to say, Saffron Burroughs, congratulations on being six feet tall. When she stands up from the scene where she's like, can I blow you in your dentist's office? The fact that she's like five inches taller than Don Cheadle, I, I, I applauded. Um, and she remained tall the rest of the movie. Good for her. Let me say this. Do you think Saffron Burroughs is tall enough to play Bill de Blasio in our <laughs> Al Pacino, Andrew Cuomo movie? We found it. It's not Stephen Merchant. It is... Our Lady Saffron Burrows. Yeah. Um, I think... But like, what is... Like, what, <laughs> I had so much trouble, like, figuring out the tone of this movie. Because on, like, one hand, it's a broad comedy of, like, husbands and wives. Like, why do wives have so many things they want husbands to do? <laughs> they want them to make... They want Jada them to Pink make puzzles. Smith. Yeah, Jada Pinkett Smith. Like, all she wants to do is, like, make a puzzle with John Cheadle. And, like... Why not? The joke you just made reminds me of the joke from Arrested Development that Sarah and I quote all the time with Tobias and Lindsay where they've been having marital troubles for 10 years, 15 years because he's a gay man. And Michael's like, when did all this trouble start? And Tobias goes, well, I don't want to blame it all on 9-11, but it certainly didn't help. <laughs> and I think that's, <laughs> that's the tag that this movie, that should be the tagline for Rain Over Me, I think. Right. It didn't start with 9-11, but that certainly didn't help. Yeah. And let me ask you this. How many minutes into the movie were you like, God damn it, this movie's definitely going to end with a contrived court scene with someone like Donald Sutherland as the judge? I I don't know, man. I guess. I guess soon. I think first outburst for me, like when he first just like goes ape shit on Don Cheadle. Yeah. You just, you just know they're going to end up in family court and... Robert Klein is going to fucking talk about whatever. Just unhappy Gilmore over here. Um, I, <laughs> you know who? Billy Sadison. Okay. That was only slightly worse than what I said. <laughs> Waterworks boy. Oh, yeah. Oh. Big Saddy. <laughs> what about Widower boy? Widower boy. I like that. Um, okay, the the only, like, line I had about Adam Sandler is that he kind of reminds me, as a recovering music journalist, where, where he's got that long hair and the headphones, he kind of reminds me of when, like, the publicist sticks you with the really druggy synth player who, like, doesn't normally do interviews, and they're like, do you want to talk to, like, Wally? He's the second synth player from Animal Collective. You want to talk to him for, like, right. ten minutes? And, and his like, family died in 9-11. <laughs> And you're like, okay, Wally, so you like the synth, huh? And he's just like, Seeger's a legend. And you're like, what? And there's like, Seeger's a legend! And <laughs> <laughs> that's what, that's what, uh, 
Charlie reminded me. Of. I mean, he kind of is that. He's the yeah. drummer in that like punk band for kids twenty years younger than him. Right. This movie is so unbelievably like offensive on so many levels for being a movie that's not that old. You know, the the nine eleven like emotional pandering aside, like just the weird takes on like uh like the homophobic language that they use like back and forth for really nothing more than like a cheap laugh and then following up this brutal exchange of homophobic uh slurs with then a like kind of dated mel brooks racial gag where it's like see the white people and the black people all laugh at the black jokes from blazing saddle kind of thing yeah, from Blazing Saddles. But even that was just sort of like because they were like sort of being like, "This is, this is the sense of humor. This is the comedy paradigm that we're coming from." But like, you know how in, you'll notice that the joke in Blazing Saddles is that the bell rings over top of the N word. It's not just Adam right. Sandler saying it over and over again. Right. Yeah, it's very weird. The relationship that. Uh, Don Cheadle has with every woman on screen is very odd. Like, I don't know what it's trying to say about like workplace sexual harassment, but it's definitely not something that would be in a movie if it was released now. I think the Uh, worst way to handle it is for your boss or not your boss, but your, your coworker who treats Don Cheadle like he's his boss, Jonathan Banks being like to undo the sexual harassment, go give her what she wants. It's like, this is the weirdest approach to solving this I've ever heard. Mike Ehrmantraut should deal with that himself and probably has a way to do it. It involves murder. Yes, it does. Uh, Liv, yeah, that's Liv Tyler so weird. And then the, is very bad oh, casting the, as a therapist. Did you watch this with Sarah? No, I put it... Sarah was like kind of hanging out next to me. She's like, you can start the movie. And I'm like, I can't. You're just gonna, you're just gonna lose it. I can't. Um, the therapy is so bad so bad and then they do like the sneak attack therapist where like Don Cheadle multiple times there are multiple times where characters are brought into situations that they did like not consent to be in for their mental health it's so weird we haven't even gotten all the way into this this movie's awful Adam Sandler Charlie Feynman tries to commit suicide by cop nearly to completion and like he could have easily killed that cab driver. Um, NYD easily could have killed him multiple ways. And then the whole trial at the end that you were already criticizing is because Don Cheeto and Liv Tyler are like, he shouldn't, he needs to recover at Charlie's pace. And I'm just like, guys. Why do we have mental hospitals if not for people who almost successfully commit suicide by cop? It's almost like they shot the cop sequence after because there's no mention of him nearly getting killed. Yeah, waving a gun at a or kill cab or hurting driver. someone else. Cuz like that's really the threshold of like should we commit They make it seem like it's the montage of him like oh we can't put the blocks together so he needs to be here for a year. <laughs> it's like what about when he waved a gun on like you know on, on West 4th Street? He's, yeah, he's Travis Bickle, not ET. <laughs> Indeed. Um I just want to read so the line the monologue that's supposed to win Adam Sandler what I think was who won the Oscar in 
People's Cho- MTV Movie 2007. Award. <laughs> Did DDL win the Oscar? The, was this the There Will Be Blood Oscar? I just want to be clear that Adam Sandler was nominated for a Teen Choice Award in 2007. The teens were very sensitive to the plight. They love 9-11. Oh, Sean Penn won for Milk. Um, oh. Um, anyway, where Adam Sandler tries to win his Oscar is where Liv Tyler, the therapist, is like, Charlie, you don't have to tell me what happened to the family you're repressing, but you have to tell someone. And Adam Sandler is like, me, and goes out to the waiting room and immediately tells yeah. Don Cheadle. <laughs> I like your breasts. <laughs> and immediately tells Don Cheadle, And I think, I want to read a part of this monologue. He says, Doreen and the girls were very female. I was the odd, (laughs) (laughs) I was the oddball. Mr. Man, they adored me. (laughs) I feel like three out of those four statements are true. Now that was on your OkCupid profile like uh, some time ago, right? 2007. Yeah, that was... (laughs) They adored me. Uh. This movie's awful, man. I think um, it put me in that weird hyperbolic place where I'm like, is this worse than Monster-in-Law? Like, how does this stack up against the worst things we've ever watched? I really hated it. No, this is definitely a bottom one and really, like, took the fun out of, like, you know, my (laughs) 9-11. I know. You ever watch too many Christmas movies in a row and then it's just like, ugh, I'm like over Christmas? <laughs> well, that's how I feel this year on 9 11. Uh, so, yes, Rain Over Me is a, is a bad, bad. It's terrible. Rain Over Me is one of the worst movies I think we've watched for this podcast. And I was, it was so funny. I was texting my buddy, uh, Alex Wiederspiel, because I remember watching this movie in theaters with him and thinking it was good. Uh, maybe I was one of those teens who wanted to get Adam Sandler the Teen Choice Award <laughs> for his his role in this. You tried to choose um, him? I have to say that great music in this movie, but it makes the music sound bad because the movie's so bad. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen's The River is a good album. I wish I didn't have to listen to it through Adam Sandler's headphones as he like pretends that tragedy has given him like a learning disability we're almost to the point now where if somebody is like pitching you a movie and they're like what motivates my character is trauma you're like you roll your eyes because you know it's it's such a part it's a like i think an overdone part of our like character development conversation here but it also just made me see like this is what people thought trauma was in 2007 they're like it's called post-traumatic stress disorder and it makes him act like dustin hoffman in rain man it's like holy shit i don't like it fast forward it's very weird and very offensive um and like the movie's wise enough to be like hey don Sheeta, like did this guy ask for your help and him to be like well no what's your point and then then being like well nothing let's keep going (laughs) i didn't have a point just another hour of movie I just had another hour of movie that ends like Miracle on 34th Street not, for 9-11. <laughs> not to go all Noah Ballard, but 2.04 is an unforgivable runtime for this film. 
It is. It absolutely should not be more than like 80 minutes. 80. <laughs> um, all right. My God. Bad, bad. I want to talk about two, before we leave, two positives of the legacy of 9-11. There's this really good short film um written and directed by adam baron that i had the pleasure of watching when i was uh doing some jury work for the north bend film festival this year called trade center um which is i i think it's on vimeo i think you can find it um but it's just images of like the 9-11 flag waving kind of memorials and gift shops while all the audio is narrations of um New York City residents in the 80s and 90s all gay men talking about what a what a hub for like hookups and connection the World Trade Centers were amid all like this whole kind of financial world in the 80s and 90s and it's this fantastic juxtaposition of exactly what most of these movies kind of get wrong of like how weird the memorial veneer for all of this has been come like juxtapose against people's actual experience of being New Yorkers in these like one-time monuments to commerce and now forever monuments to just America as like a very limited idea. It's always very baffling to me when there are folks in from out of town, like the first thing they want to do is the 9-11 memorial. First of all, why? Why? (laughs) Yeah, why? Like what is the draw of like something like that? And I think it's tied up exactly with, you know, the humor of that juxtaposition you're just talking about is that it's like, it's like a brand. It's yeah. like a part of seeing, you know, the the White House or the Capitol building or the Arlington Washington Cemetery Memorial or Washington Monument. Arlington Cemetery. It's yeah. the same. And you feel like you have to pay homage to it um, as like an American or something to feel like a patriot. Yeah, but you're not really paying a homage to anyone's like lived experience, which is kind of bizarre. Anyway, no, this- you're just paying paying the gift shop. Right. Um, so I would seek out that movie. It's awesome. I was thinking about it as these other movies were failing in front of me for four hours. Um, the only other thing I think is good about the 9-11 legacy is my friend Ryan in sixth grade once turned to us and said, do you guys ever like freak out because every time you look at the clock, it's 9-11. He meant this in complete sincerity. And we were like, what the fuck are you talking about? But now every time I do, I'm like, God, every time I look at the clock, it's 9-11. What the hell is that about? So thanks, Ryan. Uh, Noah, any final reflections from you, my friend? No, I, this was my idea, and it was a stupid one. <laughs> so let's. <laughs> I I thought it would be like kind of like cathartic, but and amusing, and it has been both I of those felt things. Both of that, but overall, still not worth it. But like sitting through six hours of like 9-11 around 9-11, you know, I mean, I guess it was better than watching like Countdown to Bin Laden on Fox News. Right. Uh, But, you know, I I, I find the coverage of it to either be like pretty sad because of the clarity provided by 20 years or just like pretty sad and like the weird misguided patriotism. Right. Uh, So... Yeah. So fuck 9/11 sucks. To be clear, in like 12 weeks when for the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, I pitch you on doing Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor three times in a row. You don't want to do that? No, I'm in. What no. You... I mean that was talk about redemption. We yeah. got him. 
We did you know that after Pearl Harbor, not a day later, we went back to Japan and just murdered that whole country. That's what Michael Bay taught me in middle school. No, these things are terrible. People died. I don't know why we celebrate them as if they're like patriotic things. It's dumb. This whole experience made me depressed. <laughs> Rain on me. <laughs> Only love.